Hi, listeners. Welcome to the Grief Out Loud podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Janet Christofero and wanted to give you just a little heads up as you listen to this episode, you'll be hearing references to our old name, which was Dear Dougie. So just so you don't get too confused, you're listening to the right podcast, and we look forward to bringing you even more great content under the Grief Out Loud name. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Dear Dougie podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children in Portland, Oregon. I'm Jana DeCristofero, and after over 30 years of listening to the stories of grieving children, teens, and adults in our bereavement groups, we wanted to find a way to share what we've learned from them with the larger community. Our podcast is a way to open up the often avoided conversation about grief. While we all experience loss during our lives, most of us find ourselves confused and unsure about what to do when it does occur. We're not sure how to feel or how to talk about it. So whether you're grieving a loss or wanting to support someone who is, we're here to answer your questions. Today, I'm being joined by Rebecca Hobbs Lawrence, one of our longtime Dougie Center staff members, who has a lot of knowledge and expertise in working with children and adults who um, have special needs. So whether that's children who maybe are on the autism spectrum or adults who are dealing with cognitive impairments and how to help them and their bereavement needs. So Rebecca, do you want to share a little bit about what we'll be talking about today? Today we'll be talking about um, supporting children and teens as well as adults with special needs, like you said, and really looking at some of the challenges that arise when working um, with people, as well as ways to support them, including activities, and and really just being aware also of the language that they use when they're expressing their grief. And can you share just a little bit about some of the terms that we'll use today as we're talking about this issue? We're going to kind of use special needs as kind of the umbrella for supporting people that may have a developmental disability, a cognitive disability, a physical disability that leads to some cognitive impairment, as well as those individuals on the autism spectrum scale. That might include um, people from Asperger's to maybe more severe autism. Okay, great. And you know, as listeners today, if, um, if you're out there and you have some thoughts or things you'd like to share with us about different terminology or different ways that we are talking about this issue, we'd love to hear from you so that we can be sure we're being as inclusive as possible. Very inclusive, right. So let's just start with what are some of the biggest challenges that you've encountered um, maybe for parents who are trying to support children who Mm -hmm. have special needs or um, working directly with people who have special needs and grief? Right. I think our first challenge is ourselves most often that as helpers, and that includes parents, teachers, counselors, anybody who's wanting to support someone else in their grief, we first have to look at... um, our own grief first and how do we respond to it because we often assume that other people are going to respond like we do. And we have to kind of get that out of our head because when we're working with people with special needs, they'd certainly have their own language. And so we need to kind of move past our own experience and really be able to sit with them and really stay in tune and listen and watch what their language is sharing about their own experience. So similar to how we share with parents um, that children grieve very differently than adults do, and we have to be 
aware of that so that if we are talking with a child and they're crying intensely for a few moments and then bam, they want to go play soccer. (laughs) And as a parent or a caregiver in some sort, we're left with maybe our heart opened up and wanting to talk more and share more and emote more in that way. And our child is off playing in the yard. Um, I can imagine that would be even more present when trying to support those maybe who are processing information differently than we are. Right. And so you're going to see things like um, more repetitive kinds of behaviors. And especially with people um, that have a developmental disability, that behavior is going to be their primary mode of expression. It's not going to be verbal. And again, as adults, we like to have everybody sit down and discuss with us what they're thinking and feeling. And that won't be our experience in supporting a person with special needs. So we really need to be able to sit down and really make eye-to-eye contact with them and listen because their sentences are going to be often far shorter. And and most importantly, what is their behavior saying about their experience? So it might not be sitting down with them. It might be getting up and moving around the room. Maybe moving around and maybe um, it, it may be following them. So one of the characteristics often um, that first comes up for someone with a developmental disability is a seeking kind of behavior. And we'll see them moving from room to room with kind of a perplexed look on their face. It may even escalate into more of an aggressive, um, intense kind of searching for something. And, you know... So looking for the person who died. Looking for the person who died. And... You know, we don't know exactly what that exp- that experience is in their own minds, how they're perceiving it. You know, could it be, am I looking for that person? It Could it be, I'm really mad they're not here with me? We don't know exactly what it is. But what we can say and what we can support is that searching and finding ways and able to help them facilitate their grief by searching with them and actually becoming more inclusive in their own process with them. So what might that look like? Can you give an example? Yeah, so one of the things that you might do with uh, an individual that's searching is to have pictures of the person who died and actually put it in some of the rooms that are the most common places to search. And then as you go into each room with them and they're searching and looking around, you can point to the picture and share memories that you have of that person in that room, ideally actually with the person then who has the special need as well. So you might say, I remember Mary helping you bake cookies in the kitchen. And I remember you laughing one time when the flour fell all over the floor, <laughs> you know, sharing that kind of memory or going into the bedroom and saying, I remember when Mary would put you to bed and how she sang that little song to you. And it always seemed to calm you down. And so you're going to go into each room and do that and have a picture of Mary in each room to help highlight that this is the person you're talking about. So you're combining a behavior now with a ritual that is going to help them process that Which grief can experience. be calming and soothing to have that. Right. So. And, a help, and a way to also remember. So it's, it becomes a, a ritual, both of language, of processing, of remembrance. So it's really an all-encompassing kind of experience for them. And it sounds like something that 
people would do almost naturally that each time we walk into a room, we would remember specific events or um, experiences we had with the person who died in that room. And then now you're making that a shared experience. Right. And so often I think what happens with people with a special need is that they're already feeling often isolated from peers, from family. They're different than most of the people around them. So they're already having an isolating um, kind of more an individual experience instead of a group experience. And those things around death often are important to have those group experiences also because how we see ourselves in the world is really often through how others are seeing us too. Reflect us back to ourselves. (laughs) So we really need that. So that sounds like such a great idea for helping to keep up the memories and the honoring the effect that the person had or the impact that they had in our lives and also to give some sort of ritual to that searching behavior that can happen. Right. Backing up a little bit, how how do you suggest that people share the information? Because that's a question mm-hmm. we get all the time. All the time. Whoever it is. <laughs> exactly. I, you have to be really concrete and specific and simple. You don't want to use a lot of words, and, but you do want to be very honest with them. I think it's not uncommon, as well as with children, that people will hold back information when they're sharing news of a death with someone with special needs, as if they can't take it. You know, there's something more fragile about them, and so they're going to protect them. And the fact is, is that they need to have that information just as much as anybody else. But how the information is given obviously needs to be directed at where they are developmentally. And so being very um, concrete, being very specific, and being very um, simple kind of in the words that you're using, but not using euphemisms either, meaning, you know, they went to sleep um, or they moved away. I mean, we lost them. So we lost them. Like I'm going to go find them, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know. We talked about the searching behavior. If we tell someone that we lost someone, that could definitely intensify that. That that kind of searching behavior. So you want to avoid that and just be very clear and use words like they died or they're dead, as we would often, you know, often always tell a parent for a child. So could you give, um, maybe talk us through that, say, as somebody who developmentally is about six or mm-hmm. seven years old and their dad has just died um, after being ill with cancer for a while. What's an example of how you might share that news? That news with him. Well, we would first start out hoping that the, the parent having cancer has been already shared with them and what that is like. So they are not caught off guard by a parent that is now sick um, and dead. Um, but you would want to sit down with them and say, I have hard news to share with you. And it's important that you hear my words and that then you can ask any questions you have. And today at the hospital, your dad died and the doctors tried really hard, but he is no longer alive. And that means he can't sleep, he can't eat, he can't talk, he can't move. And all those things that we think about being alive, your dad can no longer do. He can't he feel anything. His heart stopped feel beating. Anything. So you want to be really yep, concrete in that. What does that mean? So one of the things that's really important when someone understands that someone is dead is that inability to move. Um, 
So all the processes in our body that help us do what we do um, have to be told. And so that gives them also a place of being able to look at their own bodies and see what we do, what makes us alive, and knowing that if we can't do those things, that's what being dead means. And then I would really just sit back and, and say, what, what is it that you want to know? What so allowing them to ask their have? questions. Right, mm-hmm. right. You don't want to inundate them with so much information that their processing is overloaded. So really being able to give time to the conversation. And usually that will take multiple conversations. That's what I was wondering. What, what might caregivers expect in terms of needing to repeat that story? Many, many times. Um, And I think what's helpful in not just the repeating of the story, but then that's when also creating some activities that you can use with the story become very helpful with people with special needs. So one of them might be um, having pictures of the person when they're alive. And you can do this also when there's an illness. So you're talking about cancer. You're taking pictures of somebody when they're healthy. And then as they have the illness and it's progressing, and their bodies are deteriorating, they're losing hair, maybe losing weight, you're taking pictures. Um, But this can be also with a sudden death. You can do the same thing, but pictures of when they're alive, and then you can also take pictures of a body after it has died. Maybe there's an open casket, and you take some pictures. Um, Maybe in the hospital, you take a couple pictures of the person in the hospital bed after they have died. So... You can actually put that in a little book for them. And when you're sharing this information, you can actually bring out the photos and talk to them about it. And I know some people are going to be like a little squeamish about this, but it's actually a very, very helpful way to convey information in a pictorial form, which is often much more accessible with somebody who has a special need than the verbal intake of Mm. information. And that they have to process. For some of us might be uh, easier to just say the words rather than match those with a photo. But you're sharing that that can really ease the the process for for people to understand what has happened. Yes. And it makes me wonder if if as a caregiver, it's too hard for you to be taking (laughs) the photos maybe to appoint somebody else in the family or a friend or someone in the medical community or a at the funeral home that can take those photos and maybe help put that book together if that might yes. be too challenging. I, I, because of our, our relationship with those people too that have died, we're, our grief is triggered as well. So to have somebody, kind of a third party that can do that for us is important. When there's an illness, I think we also have a little bit more time to have those conversations and what that might look like and, and plan ahead for it. When it's a sudden death, you know, we're caught in the moment, and that might be a little harder. But if it can happen, I think it's very important. So in those lines, we talked about how to share the information, um, and then one of the expressions of grieving can sometimes be that searching behavior mm-hmm. and some ways to, to help uh, children and adults and teens as well with that. Are there other ways that um, kids and teens and adults with special needs might express their grief that Others, that caregivers could might need some translating. Right. Um, well, I think that piece of being compulsive and often with some type or um, 
form of aggression is a very typical response after a death and often is not linked up directly with a grief response by a lot of individuals. Um, we'll see this in children too. You know, parents come in and say, my child is totally acting out. And this is true also for people with special needs that often they will um, become very repetitive in, in their processing and in their questions. Um, the same kinds of uh, little uh, rituals that they create for themselves, even for self-soothing, will become very repetitive. Um, they will want to, um, in order to make sense of it, create a, a habit in a way that may intensify. So when other people are not acknowledging it as a grief response, that's often when the aggression will escalate. So it'll get louder. In some way, yes. Mm -hmm. And so instead of yelling with your voice, the action, the behavior itself. So they might start biting, they might start kicking and hitting, um, throwing things. And these are, for us as helpers, parents often, we see this as something's getting out of control, but we're really not sure what it means. And it's important then to kind of slow down the process and, again, be able to sit down with them. And if there has been a death, I think it's really important to just in some ways make the assumption that this is in some way grief-related. And if we can start there, then we can sit with a sense of compassion and start opening up ourselves to say to them, you know, how can I help you? What does this mean? And so we have to, in a sense, change our own perspective. Right. If we see a behavior that is um, causing challenges to step back and think this is likely related to the grief and somehow, somehow, right. and could be this person trying to share something with us or ask us a question or express something in a different way. Right. And then being able to, to be with them in that moment and say, without even knowing, it may be this or it may be that, we're not going to get it right the first time. And that's okay. Because the thing is, they're not expecting it. They really want someone to acknowledge, just like we all do, what our experience is. You know, we want to feel validated in that. So having somebody come sit with us and say, I'm noticing that you are kicking a lot of things and some people are getting mad about that. And I'm wondering if you're missing your dad and just see what that response might be like. And it might be still an aggressive response. They may kick something and you can be like, oh, we're getting closer to this. Are you missing your dad? Wonder what you're missing about him. And then that can be helpful to have some other routine or rituals that come into this then of bringing out some objects that belong to the person who died. and As a way for them to connect in that moment. Connect with them and to start sharing with, like, this is what's important to me. Maybe their dad took them to the park every Sunday and there was a special hat that dad wore every time they went to the park. Pull out the hat. Pull out some other things that belong to dad. And as those objects are coming out, that person then with the special needs will be able to, to hold on to and share in their way memories that they're having of that person. And it may be, you know, three or four words in a sentence. But by doing that and just sitting in and acknowledging it and listening to them, 
we will then be able to help them unfold their own story. So we make the connection between the behavior and perhaps a need that's being expressed. And then these reminders, the memorabilia of the person who died can serve maybe as anchors to connect them with that memory, but also to um, maybe unhook that behavior. Right. And then, and then what you can do then is actually keep these rituals ongoing, at least for some time, and use them as ways to kind of be more proactive in supporting the grief instead of being responsive in the moment to something that's happening. And that's going to be important. It's also important to remember, and rituals are really helpful in this way, that like all of us, grief sits in our bodies. And Our bodies also are very aware of anniversaries, and this is very true for people with special needs, that even if they may not be able to look at a calendar and be aware of a date that's coming up, that their bodies will remember. And so you may see behaviors escalate a year to three years later towards an anniversary, and by then a lot of people who are around them are very unaware of the fact that it's an anniversary. But it's going to be important for hopefully someone close to that person to know that an anniversary is coming up or some special day, maybe a birthday. Um, Might be an anniversary of uh, an event or um, an experience that that person shared with the person who died that may may be special and unique just to them. To them. So one of the ones I heard about is um, a boy who went to a cabin every summer with their family, the extended family. And it was, that was when they felt really connected and bonded to everybody and felt like kind of a part of a tribe in that way. And when the, the mother died and they no longer went to the cabin, that came up the following summer. This is the time when I go bond with my family. This is my time to be part of the community. So it was a loss not of just a parent, but a loss of an extended family, an extended community that 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 little boy no longer had. Yeah. Are there any um, examples from groups that you've been part of where you've seen particular activities or um, rituals that have been helpful? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, there's a little boy that particularly sticks out for me. and, And this was me creating a ritual with him just watching him and listening to him, what his needs were. And we would come into opening circle. Every group, he would create a map for me of all the kids in the group. And there would be circles for girls, squares for boys. And he would put a D or an M on each one, meaning dad died, mom died. And so he could track where everyone <laughs> was sitting and what their stories were. What they, what they were. And so he'd always sit next to me to my left and he would create this map. And he was very in tune to being in the group with peers, although he never really shared about his own dad's death. He was able to connect by having this map, and it also created a lot of order for him. So his routine was to be able to create this map every time and then to give it to me as a way, I believe, of saying, one, he was helping me know who was there. It was creating order for me. But it was also for me to help understand his experience. His way to share with you. To share with me. And he would also go into the volcano room and be my timekeeper. So not only was he orderly and about numbers in group, he was all about the numbers in the volcano room. And he could be the eye of the tornado in the volcano room and have all these kids around him just being 
you know, big, big energy. And he could stand right in the middle and say, 60 seconds until <laughs> your turn's over. And then 30 seconds till your turn's over. And it was his way of being, again, part of a larger community. Mm-hmm. Part, part of, of the, the flow group. of the group. And help him make sense. He knew why he was there. We have all had moms and dads die. I'm curious, did he put himself on the map? He put himself on the map and he would put a D, although he would never talk about it. (laughs) He was very aware that his dad died and he was, in a way, part of this club we were in. Wow, what a great example of, you know, we're not always expressing verbally. Right. Just as many of the kids in our groups will pass, but they will share in other ways, um, whether it's raising their hand to yeah. a question. But for him to put himself on the map and say, yeah, my dad died too, but I'm not going to share that verbally. Right. And the one time he actually ever did share about his dad, he never worked on individual projects himself or activities. So I brought out a mural one day, big piece of paper, and I said, we're all going to go up to the paper and draw whatever we want to about grief whatever we want to. And so him surrounded by his peers, he drew a picture, stick figures of him and his dad playing baseball. And then there was a cloud up above and in Spanish, I can't read Spanish, but he told me what it said. It said, hola, dad, do you remember me? And it was just absolutely amazing. He couldn't say the words verbally again. Um, but with pictures and having his peers around him again, he was able to connect in a way that was meaningful to him. So again, another great reminder of the inclusion and how important it is to include everyone who's uh, in the process of grief with the family or with the community, even if their way of expressing that grief or, or sharing about that grief is very different than everyone else's. Right. We all want to feel understood and a part of something bigger than ourselves. Especially when something as heartbreaking as grief is going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Rebecca. And sadly, we are out of time. And I know there's much more. So hopefully you can join us again for another follow-up episode about this. But we will post a few of the suggestions that Rebecca shared with us today on our show notes. So you can reference back to those. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jana. And thanks everyone out there listening for being part of another episode of the Dear Dougie podcast. To learn more about us and to listen to past episodes, you can find us at Dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. We'd love to answer any questions you might have or talk about something on the podcast that's important to you. So you can send any suggestions our way at help at Dougie.org. And if you could just put podcast somewhere in the subject line, that'll help us find you. And we look forward to having you join us again for another episode of the Dear Dougie podcast. Thanks for listening.